church. How are we doing? Strong Tower family. Doing good? I don't know about y'all, but the worship team today. It's the worship team. I, I mean, my heart was already full after, uh, after grow class this morning. But then, that. So we're, uh, we're going to be in Isaiah chapter 61 this morning. Isaiah chapter 61. If you want to grab your Bible or your tablet or phone, whatever you're going to be using today. Isaiah 61. And again, if you're new here, we want to welcome you. Um, if you don't know me, my name is Ben. I'm the lead pastor here. Um, if you have some time after service, we'd love to get to know you a little bit. There's a hospitality team in the back that would also love to help you find your way around Strong Towers. Isaiah 61, we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 8. Hear the reading of God's Word. It reads, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. Proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. They shall build up the ancient ruins. They shall raise up the former devastations. They shall repair the ruined cities, the devastations of many generations. Strangers shall stand and tend your flocks. Foreigners shall be your plowmen and vine dressers, but you shall be called the priests of the Lord. They shall speak of you as the ministers of our God. You shall eat the wealth of the nations, and in their glory you shall boast. Instead of your shame, there shall be a double portion. Instead of dishonor, they shall rejoice in their lot. Therefore, in their land, they shall possess a double portion. They shall have everlasting joy. For I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and wrong. I will faithfully give them their recompense, and I will make an everlasting covenant with them. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. I want to tag our text today, good news to the poor, good news to the poor. Let's pray before we dive in. Father, thank you for your word today. Thank you that you speak to us by it, that in the power of your Holy Spirit, you speak to us. You are not a silent God, but a speaking God. So we thank you that today as we read your word and, and we sit under it and listen for your spirit's voice, that you transform our hearts and our minds by it. So, God, we pray that you would do that very thing today for your glory and our good. In Jesus' name, amen. May be seated. Trail Magazine is one of the most widely read uh, magazines that are related to climbing. It has tens of thousands of subscribers that read the magazine on a monthly basis. And uh, in the February 2004 issue, they made a major mistake. And they didn't really catch it at first because no one apparently knew what was going on, but someone who was reading the magazine caught it because they were reading the article that was describing step-by-step -step instructions of how to navigate Britain's highest peak, 
to come down the peak. It was giving these step-by-step instructions because, you know, in bad weather, the visibility can be really bad and you can get lost and it can be very dangerous. And, and one of the safety advisors who was reading this magazine caught the mistake and he wrote this letter to the editor. He said, the potential consequences of following the advice provided by Trail Magazine are clear. If anyone following a bearing of 281 degrees from anywhere close to the summit or shelter will be taken directly over the North Cliff. The magazine read his comments and and they admitted, they went back, they looked at their instructions, and sure enough, they had missed a step. They missed a step in the instructions that if you were to follow these instructions to the T, and you, in your you know, lack of visibility, didn't know where you were going, but you were following the step-by-step instructions, sure enough, you would step right over the cliff and fall a thousand feet. They quickly apologized and changed everything that was related to the article because they realized the danger of their mistake, that if you followed the bad advice, it was costly. Right? Bad advice can be very costly. Any of y'all ever had bad advice? Right? It, it could, I mean, all of us have had bad advice at some point in your life. It, it might have been minor, it might have been major, but you've had advice that you followed, and hopefully you didn't follow step-by-step instructions to your death of a thousand-foot drop. Right? But, but some of us have followed advice, maybe it was relationship advice, or money advice, or career advice, or something in your life that, that you needed some help with, and Someone came alongside and it sounded good. They, they sounded like they were an authority who knew something, and, and maybe they really did, and they didn't mean to, but they gave you some bad advice. And I think sometimes, uh, well, first of all, good advice is better than bad advice, right? Let's just clear that up before I move on. Good advice is better than bad advice, but sometimes good advice is not enough, right? Good advice is not enough. And sometimes people come to Christianity and they think, I'm going to God to get good advice. I'm going to God because my marriage is falling apart or I'm struggling with, with this thing, this addiction, or, or I'm really depressed and lonely and, and I need some help. And so I'm going to God because I need some wisdom and some good advice and I've heard that God has wisdom. And that is true. Again, good advice is better than bad advice, and God has a lot to say about how we live our life and how to live it wisely. But let me tell you, good advice is not enough. And in fact, what this passage is going to teach us is that good advice is not the gospel. That the gospel is not good advice, it's good news. It's good news, and they're radically different. Radically different. And so we come to this text in this series in Isaiah, and we're coming to the final section. Right? We've been ta- we're in the final section. We've been talking about how this final section in the book of Isaiah is uh, unpacking Isaiah's vision of the future. And he's preaching this message to people who've yet to go into the exile. They're, they're still in their homes. They're still in their comfortable ways of life. But in just a few short years, everything's going to change. They're going to lose their families, they're going to lose their homes, their land. The life as they knew it will be gone, and they will be powerless. And listen, the message he gives them is not one of good advice. Because 
the powerful can take good advice and do something with it because they have the ability. The powerless don't need good advice. They need good news. There, there's a difference because the powerless needs somebody to come and say the reality has changed completely. Because they, they couldn't do anything to change the reality, so they need something outside to say, this is what is now true. And this is what Isaiah does. Isaiah gives good news, news that changes everything for all of us. And so I want to look at how the gospel is more than good advice, it's good news. And first, if you're taking notes, we've got to look at how it's good news of new people. New people. Uh, this is the first point, new people. Look at verse 1. He says this, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. Now listen carefully. The one who's speaking in this text is Isaiah's messianic servant. The messianic servant is this mysterious figure in Isaiah's uh, book who, who uh, we see here has been anointed by God, sent by God, and now we, we're kind of getting an understanding of what he's being sent for. And he says it right here. It's interesting that the Messiah, this messianic figure, his mission wasn't to go to God's people to give them good advice. He says, I've been sent to proclaim. In other words, I, I am a herald of good news. The, the word proclaim means I'm coming of news that's already happened. So, something that God has done for you already. And who's the message for? He says right here, it's for the poor. Now, the word poor here in Hebrew is interesting because it, you can translate it afflicted or humiliated. It really has this broad meaning of both spiritual poverty and physical poverty. And, and Isaiah kind of unpacks that a little bit as he gives concrete examples, right? He, he says, I've come for the brokenhearted, the captives, the prisoners. And so he's saying, I want to expand this category of what you think poverty is to include everybody. The people that you would dismiss because you think, oh, that's just uh, physical poverty, or the people you would exclude because you would say that's just spiritual poverty. He says, I want to include all of it so that the people who are included in this proclamation is every person affected by the sin and misery of this world. That's who the message is for. Because all of us are powerless. All of us. And this is what he says. Here's the good news in verse 2. He says, To proclaim to you the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. To comfort all who mourn. What's interesting is the year of the Lord's favor is, is just another way of talking about the year of Jubilee. And the year of Jubilee was this time that would happen once every 50 years. On the Day of Atonement, the Day of Atonement where they would make atonement for the nation's sins, on the 50th year, the 50th day of atonement, they would pronounce the year of Jubilee. And they were to sound the trumpet so that everyone could hear this was the year of Jubilee. And on that day, all their debts would be uh, forgiven. All the land would be restored to the original owners. All the prisoners would be set free. All the slaves would be set free. Everything was basically reset. It was this radical social concept that probably the most radical concept in the Bible. And here's the thing, it was never practiced. Well, seriously, we have no evidence that Israel actually ever practiced it. 
but it was outlined in the law of Moses. This is how you would care or how you would do the, the year of Jubilee. And Isaiah, the prophet, looks into the future and he says, look, I see a time when we actually do it. When it actually happens that this day of atonement that forgave us has now led to the year of Jubilee that sets us free. See, if atonement forgives us, Jubilee transforms us. You hear that? And so the gospel is more than forgiveness. It's transformation. It's radical transformation. There's a Japanese word. Uh, I'm probably going to say it wrong, but kintsukuroi. I tried on YouTube to see if that was right. But kintsukuroi is, is this word that means golden repair. And it's this artwork uh, of repairing pottery that's been broken. And it, apparently the, the word has its origin in this legend uh, of this military leader, this powerful military leader who had this favorite bowl in his house. And he had this massive party of all these people coming over and, and they were celebrating and somewhere in the festivities somebody used his bowl and dropped it on the floor and it shattered into many pieces. And everybody at the party, they gasp, right? The, the room empties because they're worried, what's he going to do? And his response was, I want somebody to come up with a way to repair my bowl to better beauty. And so the artists in the community, they started coming up with these different ideas. And one artist uh, came up with an idea to actually, uh, as he's gluing and, and putting together this, these pieces, that he would sprinkle gold into uh, the material and brush it into it so that when it dries, you could see the lines and it looks like you've repaired it with ribbons of gold. And what happened was the bowl was actually more beautiful now than it was in its original state. It was completely transformed. And listen, this, this is what the gospel does, right? The gospel begins with forgiveness. Don't get me wrong. Listen to this. The gospel begins with forgiveness. God has come in the person and work of Jesus Christ. He has come in the person of Jesus to live the life that we couldn't live to live a life of righteousness and wholeness, to love his neighbor perfectly, to love the Father perfectly, to earn for us a record of righteousness and obedience that we couldn't do. And then after that life of perfect obedience, he dies a perfect death. And this is what theologians call his active obedience and his passive obedience, meaning he acted out the life we should have done and he received the death that we should have received. This is what Jesus has done so that by faith, we receive his full and final forgiveness. That's the good news. But listen, the gospel, the gospel doesn't stop there. That's not the end of the gospel. The gospel starts with forgiveness, but it ends with transformation. God wants us to go from believing the gospel to becoming the gospel. Right? He wants us to become radically transformed people. What, what Isaiah says here is he says you will be called Oaks of righteousness. I love that imagery. Oaks of righteousness. And he says, the Lord's planting. Meaning it was the Lord who did it, and it's the Lord who grows it. But you who didn't have any righteousness, now the God of the universe has put into you the righteousness you needed so that you could become what you could never become. But he's going to transform you, and it's going to be radically different. You're not going to be the person that you once were. He's going to take you from where you were and take you to where he wants you to be. As Paul said, he said, all of us are being transformed from one degree of glory to another. 
from glory to glory to glory, right? That's the vision of the gospel. The vision is not, I'm forgiven and now I'm going to heaven. The vision is, I've been forgiven and now God is going to transform me forever. Forever. And God uses our brokenness for a greater beauty. That, that's the mystery of the gospel. That somehow what we once were is nothing compared to what we will be. It's, it's a golden repair. Right? You, you may not see it right now as he's working in you to transform you, but, but he's brushing the brokenness of your past with, with his golden flakes of grace. And that's what he's doing. He's, he's working it together, putting it together, looking back over your life, and, and you can see it as you look closely. You can see his ribbons of grace from your broken marriage, his ribbons of grace from your addiction, his ribbons of grace from your wayward children, his ribbons of grace from your, your, your poverty and your brokenness, your, your fears and your loneliness, all of it. He's using it to transform you into something greater, into new people. But listen, it's not just new people. It's also new places, and this is where Isaiah goes. It's new places is the second thing he says. Look at verse 4. He says, they, now listen, look at that change there. They shall build up the ancient ruins. They shall raise up the former devastations. They shall repair the ruined cities, the devastations of many generations. Did you catch the transition? There's a transition from the first part that says, this is what the Messiah is going to do. Now, this is what the Messiah's people are going to do. It's a change from, this is what, what we are called, you catch that? This is what they are called to, this is what they shall build. So he's saying that, that these changed people, these new people, this radical transformation of oaks of righteousness are now called to do something with that righteousness. And this is what he says. He says, this place, this place that was ruined, right? Babylon comes to Jerusalem. They, they ransack the city. They burn it down. They, they bring down the walls. All the buildings are destroyed and the families are moved out. It's nothing but rubble. This was the place where God dwelled. This was the place that God had made his home and now it was a shame. People call Jerusalem this shameful place. And God says, I'm going to bring them back to rebuild. To rebuild the ruins. The changed people are going to change this place. And we see this radical difference in verse 7. Look at what he says. He says, instead of your shame, there shall be a double portion. Instead of dishonor, they shall rejoice in their lot. Therefore, in their land, they shall possess a double portion. They shall have everlasting joy. Right? Shame, shame is this disappointment of hope. Shame is, I, I feel like there's no way I can get out of this. There, there's no way that this can get better. This is just the way it is, and I've given up on hope. And, and he's saying, in the midst of your shame, I'm going to flip it on its head and you're going to have a double portion of honor. The, the nations are going to look at you, and they're going to flock to you, and, and their wealth is going to build up. And he's painting this picture of just uh, of wholeness and thriving, and, and the community transformed. And he says, this is what you're going to be. And what you're going to be as a place 
is going to be different than what you were before. It's going to be doubly great. Why? Look at verse 8. For I, the Lord, love justice. What he's saying is, God loves not only thriving people, but thriving places. Thriving places. The gospel doesn't ignore places. It transforms places. It transforms them. You know the story of Nehemiah? Nehemiah lives after Isaiah had prophesied. And Nehemiah is living during the time that Isaiah said was coming. He's living in the exile, and he's living as this Jewish man with lots of power and access. He, he was the cupbearer to the Persian king Artaxerxes. And here in this position of power and influence, he has the king's ear. He hears about Jerusalem. And he hears about his beloved city that has been devastated and, and how no one has done anything about it and it's still in shambles and ruins and it breaks his heart. He hears the news and, and he, oh, he's overwhelmed with grief. That, that, that is his home. That's the place that he dwelled and his people is from. And, and so he, he's broken over it to the point that the king notices. The king realizes something is wrong with Nehemiah, and so one day he asks him, you know, what's wrong with you, Nehemiah? You're weeping, you're overwhelmed, and he can't keep the secret anymore. He tells him about Jerusalem. He says, this is what's going on in my city, and I can't do it anymore. I have to go. I have to be a part of changing it. And the king miraculously says, yes. And if you know the story, Nehemiah goes on to rebuild the city with a whole team of people who return to the place. But did you notice what happened? Nehemiah saw the need. He saw the brokenness and the pain of his city. He saw the, 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 the terrible situation and condition it was in, and it moved him. It moved him to the, to the point that he said, I, I have to do something. I can't stay where I am. I have to move to rebuild. And, and what he's doing is he's answering the call of Isaiah, where Isaiah said before him, this is what would happen. You would return and you would rebuild. And he begins that project because he didn't ignore the place. He sought to transform the place. He wanted to transform the place. See, listen, transform people make transform places. That, that's how it happens. That if God is working in you, He's going to then work through you in the place that He's planted you. He's going to call you out of yourself. And, and it's because this mutual thriving of our lives, it's, it's intertwined, right? The biblical concept of justice is, is wholeness. It means that all the parts are working together the way they're designed to work. That everything is, is thriving the way that God wanted it to work. And, and that kind of biblical justice of wholeness and thriving, it requires something of us. In fact, it requires something of all of us, specifically that we would disadvantage ourselves for the advantage of someone else. In other words, if the place is going to thrive, and not just us as individual people, each of the people have to say, I'm going to die to myself so that you could live. I'm going to disadvantage myself so that you could be advantaged. And then you have to turn around and say, I'm going to disadvantage myself so that you could be advantaged. You see how that works? It's this mutual interchange between us saying, I'm going to die so that you can live as MLK reminded us, we are all tied together in a single garment of destiny. Whatever affects one 
affects all. And the call to rebuild is this call to say, we're going to change the way we do life together. And it happens in two primary ways. We build in two ways. Number one, we work. Right? We work. That means you got to get your hands dirty. That means we got to go from, uh, I'm just talking about things, or I'm posting things, or I'm liking things, or I read a couple books, or YouTube videos I've seen, or, or you know, just getting a lot of information, rather than saying, I'm going to put my hand to the work. Right? When, when Nehemiah said, I'm going to go rebuild the city, he didn't say, I'm going to start a committee on research. He said, let's grab a shovel. Let, let's figure out how to, to get engaged and do the work. And, and that doesn't mean you need to be a part of some kind of program. It's, it's doing what you do now with the intentionality that you want to rebuild. That you want to build God's kingdom in the place that He's planted you. Wherever that is. That we're we're going to seek the wholeness and the thriving of what God has called them to do. And that means the way you raise your kids, the way you buy groceries, the way you go to your job, the people you talk to, the places you volunteer, whatever it may be. But I'm going to invest in this place. Because God has changed me. He's changed me. But listen, when you do that kind of investment, when you say, I'm going to disadvantage myself for the advantage of someone else, that's when you start praying. That's the second thing. It starts with work, but, but that work is eventually going to push you into prayer because you're going to realize, I don't have what it takes to do this work. I, I don't have the energy. I don't have the time. I don't have the smarts. I don't, I don't have what it takes, but God has called me to do something that I can't do. And so we pray. And we seek God's work in our work. We seek God's work. Again, Nehemiah, he was constantly praying. It was pray and work and pray and work and pray and work. And it's that back and forth that says, this is your work, God, but I'm called to do it with you. And when we do both, God is calling us to build. And our ultimate hope, i got to keep moving, our ultimate hope is that we await the final transformation of both. Both the new people and the new place that are yet to come. And this is the last point, the now and the not yet. Luke 4 records this incredible day. Jesus was coming back from uh, early in his ministry, out in the, in the community, doing some work. He comes back to his hometown of Nazareth. And Jesus grew up in Nazareth as, as a young child, and so you can imagine he, he knew all the people in this little small town. They, they had shared playgrounds together and eaten at each other's houses and that kind of thing. Like, they knew each other. They lived life together. And so Jesus comes back to Nazareth, and he comes to his hometown synagogue. And the synagogue was kind of like the local church for the Jewish community. It was where people did life. It was the center of their, their, uh, their calendar and their, their way of doing things. And, and so everybody knew everybody, and they had a tradition in the synagogue that if, if there was a visiting rabbi, they would read a scripture and give kind of a small sermon. And so here's Jesus, this visiting rabbi, who's the hometown kid, comes back to Nazareth. And they, of course, want Jesus to preach something. They want Jesus to read a scripture. And so Jesus gets called up to the front. As he makes his way up to the front, everybody's probably wondering, what's he going to read? What's he going to say? 
And then he gets up there and, and he tells the attendant, because they would have an attendant who's in charge of the scrolls. And they've got these big uh, boxes that would hold all the scrolls with these ornate uh, decorations on them. And he, he tells the attendant, he says, I, I want you to grab the scroll of Isaiah. And so this, the, the attendant goes over to the box and thumbs through all the scrolls. You know, this wasn't like today where you have one Bible with, you know, all of them together or you got your phone with all the Bible books. He's going through the scrolls. He finds the scroll of Isaiah and the scroll of Isaiah would have been massive because the book is so long. It probably took two people to carry it. So they carry it over to Jesus. They plop it on the table. Jesus turns the little knobs and everybody's wondering, where is he going to read? And he goes to Isaiah 61. Isaiah 61, and he begins to read from verse 2, or from verse 1 and 2. He says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And after reading those words, Jesus pauses. He sits down, he hands the the scroll back to the attendant, and everybody's wondering, what's he going to say? And this is what he says, Today, in your hearing, this scripture has been fulfilled. Today. What's Jesus saying? Jesus is saying, I'm the one you've been waiting for. I'm this mysterious figure that nobody could figure out. I am the Messiah, the suffering servant of Isaiah. I am here in your presence. They've been waiting 400 years. They they had been waiting for God to speak, and now God was there among them. He had arrived with them. But did you notice what Jesus left out? Jesus stops in the middle of the sentence. Did you catch it? When he reads Isaiah 61, verse 2, he stops. He didn't continue past the day of favor. He he didn't continue to read the day of vengeance. He stopped at the year of favor. And this was intentional because Jesus was setting the the scene. He's indicating that God's work to, to bring about the promise, the promise to Isaiah had begun, but it wasn't finished. It had begun, and it's as if Isaiah, when he saw this hundreds of years before, he's looking into the future, and it's as if he saw like a mountain range. And and he didn't know that what he thought was one mountain was really two mountains. What he thought would happen in one coming would actually take two comings of Jesus. That Jesus comes in his first coming to bring about this year of the Lord's favor, but he comes in his second coming to bring about the fullness of the promise. And so now the work has started, but then it'll be finished. And so he lives now, we live now in the in-between. See, the gospel is now, but it's not yet. It's started, but it's not finished. Uh, There's a place called the Sagrada Familia in Barcelona, Spain, and and it's a a church, a basilica. It's the longest-running construction project on the face of the earth. In fact, it started in 1882. 1882, when, when the architect by the name of Gaudi, he, he laid the first stone. And, and when he lays this stone, he, he decided he's going to spend some time living in the, in the church as it's being built. 
He thought, you know, it would be inspiration for him to, to live on side and to kind of see it go up around him and to breathe in the dust. It was kind of this mystical experience for him. And so he was living there as all these kings and queens are coming to see this beautiful church building being built. And, and they're seeing it go up and imagining what it's going to look like in the fullness of its glory. And he describes to them these ornate towers that he's got planned that are going to map out biblical stories and narratives. And, and they described it as the Bible written in stone. I mean, it's just gorgeous stuff. But unfortunately, later on in life, as he had not made much progress... He dies of, a, of a, an accident that happened, and later, a couple days later, he uh, died of his injuries. And it was 1926, and he was only 20% finished in 1926. And so after that, people took up the work, and slowly different architects and artists were, were trying to go from his inspiration and finish and complete the project, but it's still yet to be finished. Their hope is 2026, but I just read actually a couple days ago that, uh, that because of COVID, they've been pushed back, so it may not even happen then. But who knows? It's been going for 140 years, this project. And when asked about it when he was still alive and people were noticing the slow pace and how long it was taking, this is what Gaudi once joked. He said, listen, my client is never in a hurry. My client is never in a hurry. See, God may not be in a hurry, but he will finish what he started. He will finish what he started in you, right? He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. He will finish the work to transform your affections. He will finish the work to set you free from every prison. He will finish the work to bind up your broken heart, to comfort all who mourn, to give beauty instead of ashes, to give oil instead of, or oil of gladness, to make you into a garment of praise for His glory. But not only in us, in His world, where He started His work, He will repair the ancient ruins. He will restore the devastations of generations. He will shower creation with His glory. Where there was shame, there will be a double portion of honor. The latter shall be greater than the former. Righteousness and praise shall sprout up, as Isaiah says, among all nations. Because our God loves justice. And our Savior will come a second time and there will be a jubilee trumpet that will sound to say all creation is set free all creation is set free and it will be on earth as it is in heaven his kingdom in fullness finished can you hear that sound like that that's the proclamation jesus wants you to hear jesus doesn't want you to hear today if you come to me, I'll give you good advice and I'll give you five steps on how to improve all the things that are going wrong in your life. Jesus says, I've come to proclaim that there's a new reality and that this is how the story ends. And if you'll come with me, I can begin the work in you now, but it'll be a little while, but I promise it will be finished. And I need you to trust me in the process because I'm going to bring about this work and nothing can stop it. And our call is to trust Him. Trust Him in that work that this one who's anointed and sent will finish it. Let's pray.
Lord Jesus, I can't imagine what it must have gone through the minds of those who heard you that day. To say, today in your hearing, this has been fulfilled. The excitement, the joy, the confusion, all the things that we feel as we try to wrestle and contemplate a promise yet to be fulfilled. And so, Lord, Lord just like those people on, on that day, we, we live in between. We trust you. We listen to you. We look forward to the day that, that you bring it about. But, God, we ask for your Spirit's work now. That you would pour out your Spirit even now to give us hope, to give us life, to help us to see what you see. To help us to continue to build and to do what you've called us to do, to seek the thriving of our cities, our places, knowing that you're the God who restores, you're the God who changes. And even though we can't see right now what you hope will come, what we hope will come, Lord, we, we trust you. We love you.